This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 412. And the quote of the day is, every time we create something, we go from zero to one. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. I hope you're doing well. This is episode 412. And if you have been listening to this for a while, I got one favor. Can you do me a big favor and leave a review on iTunes? It'll take you about 30 seconds. You go on there, you leave a review. That lets everyone know that this podcast is happening. Lets people know that it's a good podcast. If you think it's a good podcast, you do think it's a good podcast, right? Right? Am I right? Or am I right? <laughs> All right. Sorry. Too much caffeine. Anywho, uh, I want to get right into this conversation. This is with Andy Morris from Dream Symbols. And Andy is an accomplished drummer and percussionist in his own right. And he also is the owner of Dream Symbols. And we don't talk about what you think we would talk about. I mean, we talk about some symbols and we talk about how they started the company and how they how they created some unique sounds and and things and the inspiration behind the company and things like that. And then we talk about a wide variety of topics like dealing with this sort of insecurity that we all have and and this self-doubt and then also how to get things done. Like how do you take an idea from something inside of your head and actually bringing it to market or or making it a, a tangible thing that that you can actually see or listen to or sell in, in the world. So a really great conversation for that and just a really candid conversation from Andy here. So I'm super thankful that he took the time to chat with me today. Full disclosure, I'm sure that you know this already, but Dream has been an advertiser on the podcast for a long time. And Andy and I have talked before, uh, talked at NAM a few times, and then uh, another person who works at Dream Ed and I have been talking back and forth, and we keep saying, like, man, it would be really great to get Andy on the podcast, and you will see why in a few minutes. And uh, we finally made it happen, so I'm super stoked about it. And let's get into it with Andy Morris from Dream Symbols. Andy, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. Nick, man, it's my pleasure. It's been long overdue. Uh, we've just been a huge fan of what you've been doing for years well, since you started. And uh, I can't wait to sort of get down and, and, and rap with you for a while. Well, Thanks I appreciate having- it. Yeah, of course. And I want to publicly thank thank you guys for supporting this podcast for so long. So you keep this free for the listeners. So the listeners and and me personally, uh, we both appreciate it. So it's great to finally do this. And I think I've been talking to Ed uh you know, for how long about, about getting you on. And he, he, he texted me last week, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. And he said, Hey, I finally got some time for Andy. Uh, you know, can we schedule this up? And I was like, sorry, man, I'm too busy. <laughs> and, he's like, you, no. and I was like, I'm just kidding, man. Anytime he wants to come on. <laughs> Poor Ed, man. He just gets beat up left, right and center. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. We, we, uh, we go back and forth about baseball a lot too. So, <laughs> Oh yeah. He's a big fan. Yeah, like me too. Me too. So, um, so I want to get a little bit of, I always say this, but I always want to get like a little bit of context, a little bit of backstory on you. So you own dream symbols, but I know that this isn't, this isn't, wasn't your only gig. Uh, so how did you get into the, into the drumming world? Like, how did you get into the percussion world? Right. So, you know, growing up, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do music. That was 
really clear. You know, I had parents who were like, you're going to learn piano, right? And that I was into that and it grew into drums and saxophone and stuff. And I knew this is what I want to do, man. This is a lot of fun. So when I left high school uh, from a really small town in northern Ontario, I ended up in Toronto to study percussion at the university here because Nexus, one of the world's most renowned percussion ensembles, was based here. And so I came down here to study with those guys and had my brain turned inside out completely, um, which was really cool. And Toronto's a great city to live in. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge music scene here. It's a big market. There's a lot of musicians here. There's a lot of people here to study and play and record and, and do everything. And so it's a nice center. Uh, so I got into Dream because I came here to study. And like a lot of musicians, they go somewhere to study and then try and make a go of it as a freelancer. And I started doing that. And I put myself through school um, as a cartage guy. Started a cartage company. Oh, really? Yep, moving timps and harps and harpsichords around, uh, just in the right place at the right time, happened to have a truck, and the guy who had been doing it for a number of people went on the road with cats, and uh, my teacher said, oh, you got a truck? I said, sure. He said, okay, do this, and I said, okay. So that's how I put myself through school. And, and uh, Sorry to interrupt you, but for the people yeah. listening who don't understand what cartage is, essentially, they ha people have their either, was, was their stuff stored with you, or was it your equipment? Sometimes both. Yeah. Okay. So do you want me to explain what that is? So sure. Can, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm long winded. So I'm trying to keep it, keep it square. Uh, cartage is where you, um, you know, you get a gig and you call a guy like me and say, Hey, I got a gig. I'm doing a recording session. Come by my studio and deliver my, pick up my temps and take them to that studio by 10 o'clock in the morning or pick them up at the theater tomorrow night. I'm done my show and take them back. So it's really just, it's a moving service, but it specializes just in large musical instruments. So primarily percussion and harps and stuff like that. Which the crazy thing is in, in LA, I've heard stories of guys go into the studio and set their own drums up and they'll do it once. And then like, I've heard, you know, one, one person in particular who I had on the podcast, they were like, uh, they were like, don't ever go into the studio and bring your own and bring your own drums in because it makes you look like you're not a professional. So from after that, from that day forward, the guy had to uh, get carded to get his drums delivered to the studio. Man, that's funny. That does not surprise me about LA at all. Yeah. Not at all. You know, every city sort of has a different take on stuff. And, and uh, I got a, a friend down in LA who runs LA percussion rentals and uh, he's a, he's a great pal, Dan Savell. And they He's, you know, we trade war stories about how it works there compared to how it works here. And it's, mm -hmm. it's very different again in Montreal and Vancouver. I don't even think they have cartage in Montreal, in Vancouver. I think everyone does their own thing. Um, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me about LA. It's a, it's a funny gig, but man, it paid my way through school and, and kept, kept the lights on, on and the bacon in the pan for me uh, mm -hmm. as I was developing my career. And that kind of grew, you know, I decided I needed a place where I could have my own studio where I could practice and, and do what, you know, most musicians who drummers are need. That's the big challenge, right? Can I, where can I play? Where can I practice and, and store my gear? And I'm a percussionist more than a drum set player. I can play drum set. Um, but now that I've started dream, I, I don't even know if I want to say that anymore because we have so many fantastic drummers on our roster. I just feel like an idiot, you know, when I'm sitting next to those guys. Uh, but you know, as a pro, I'm a percussionist. So I have a lot of gear. You know, like timpani and marimbas and chimes and gongs and drums and all that stuff. So uh, I bought a little warehouse and that became a kind of rehearsal space and a storage space and that became renting gear. So we became a percussion backline company as well. And through that, 
uh, in my quest for the ultimate set of instruments that anybody could possibly ever need, um, I started hunting down gongs. And it was the search for gongs and specifically tuned gongs that introduced me to the guys in China who I started working on with some tuned gongs. And uh, they said, hey, we got some cymbals, man. Check this out. So I checked out the cymbals and I thought, man, these are really, really crazy. They sound amazing, but they're, they're so weird, but I love them. So we brought a bunch into Toronto and uh, I tested a bunch out with my friend Ray Dillard, who works with Dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, we sort of said, hey, let's do something with this. And we had a distributor that I was buying, you know, hand drums and stuff from. And so we partnered up with them to do the business side because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about distribution. I had a little store that was selling marimbas and stuff, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of stuff we were renting. Uh, but I didn't know that side, and I didn't really want to know that side at the time. I was like, yeah, no, I don't. I just want to like get into this instrument and develop it. So uh, that's what we did. We worked with those guys, and they sold the product, and we developed the product. Well, primarily myself in the, in the early days. Ray was here, sort of giving lots of feedback, and I'd go back to China and develop a relationship, and uh, that's how it was born. It was like, let's let's build these symbols. How do so you does how do you design a symbol? Like, how do you even know what you're looking for, and how you know if you if if, and then you're getting feedback and what, like, what does that whole, that whole feedback look like and what does that process look like? Well, you know, I don't know how it looks for other people because like, I don't think you can go to school and, yeah, want to be a symbol maker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no school for that. Right. And I certainly did not know. I was just like, well, I like this symbol. I like how it sounds. What, how can we make it better? So, you know, the very first symbols we sold were really funky. I mean, they were, they looked funky. They looked like they'd been driven over by a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were extremely hand hammered. The finish was kind of hit and miss sometimes. The edges were rough. Uh, but man, the sound was outrageous. They were just just like dragon's breath. Really cool. And I didn't find that anybody else in the market was offering something like that. Mm-hmm. So the initial, you know, we learned by just trying stuff, man. We'd go in and go, hey, well, this is cool. Can we make it more consistent? So the very first step was, here's, of all the stuff you've sent me, you know, I've got dozens of symbols here. Let's make this consistent. Because I would get things like the factory go, well, here, we sent you a 22-inch splash symbol. And I go, <laughs> what? And that's just the mindset, right? Like they go, right. well, it's, it's a splash, right? <laughs> Be like hilarious. <laughs> just hysterical. And we go, okay, I get that. And you just sort of smile and nod and go, okay, let's see if we can turn that into something a little more refined. So the initial right. steps were just to refine what we had. I got it. And that was essentially what became the early bliss symbols and the early vintage bliss symbols. That's how they mm-hmm. were developed. That was, this is a refined version of what their first attempts were. And so how do we do it? And we just sort of went in and said, okay, well, watch and learn, you know, um, mm-hmm. hang out a lot at the factory and see, watch the process and really try and absorb what was going on at each step mm-hmm. and what happened at each step and say, okay, well, what happens if we change the knife on the lathing? What happens? Oh, well, we get a different pattern on the symbol. Oh, okay, cool. Right. Lock that in. Great. What happens if we change the hammerhead or the, the, the pattern that we hammer the symbol, like in what direction are we going to hammer the symbol? Are we going to hammer it in a radial direction or a circular direction or both and in what order? And so we do experiments like that and see what kind of response we would get. Uh, 
And that was really learning the basics. Like, what happens if you hammer it this way? Okay, that's what happens. What mm-hmm. happens if you lathe it this way? Oh, that seems to be what happens. How can we make, um, oh, look, it made the symbol drier, or it made the symbol more responsive, or it made the symbol harder, or it made it sort of clunky sounding, or it made it, um, you know, what happens with more weight? If we, we can never really add weight, but we can always take weight off. So there was a lot of starting with something really heavy and then just doing countless variations of it as we would take a couple more passes off with the lathe and just sort of um, document that. Mm-hmm. So we started built a, a textbook of our own of what each symbol would do as we changed each parameter. But the problem right. is every parameter you change affects another one. Mm-hmm. So it's not that linear, unfortunately. Otherwise, it right. would be really simple. Yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with this process a little bit. Uh, I, I ran a drumstick company with another guy. And we were making the product in China because they were made out of bamboo. That's where the bamboo is. But I understand the idea of like you were saying, one, it's that, that iterative process working with people all the way across, uh, you know, all the way across the world. There's language barriers and all that sort of stuff. Not to mention, like you said, it's a nonlinear thing. So if you, you know, you change the, the, the head of the drumstick, then it's going to affect how it plays. Or if you change the shaft, then the head is going to, you know, the tip is going to sound different than there's. And so I under, I get all of that. And it's, it's a lot harder than I think it seems from, from the outset. Right. And figuring that stuff out is, is a challenge in and of itself, not only how to make a good product. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. I think that's, um, that's exactly right. And there's, there's a couple other aspects to it. I mean, uh, A, we're working in China. So there's a cultural language barrier, but there's also a cultural language um, pool of, of experience there that we can, we can draw on. So you have to be sensitive to that. If you walk in, um, I suppose it would work if you were making toasters or calculators or fishing rods, you could go in, into China and say, make this. This is how we make it, make it. But mm-hmm. we sort of took the exact opposite. We went in and said, you guys really know what to do with bronze. I mean, I've been making gongs with those guys for a little while. And, and so we had a little experience on how to modify what their process was. But the key was understanding what their process was and trying to understand how their uh, aesthetic worked, was what they thought sounded good and what they thought sounded bad, what they thought looked good, what they thought looked bad. And then um, – really understanding their process of working and, you know, um, being a little bit like water and sort of trying to move things like water rather than like a hammer. So Mm -hmm. taking their process and adjusting it to meet our needs uh, and allowing them to make mistakes. Chinese people are super friendly. um, And in many ways, some people might think that this is not true, but they're quite perfectionist. They want to do a perfect job. Um, but they, they don't, they work as a team more than as individuals. So you have to give them permission to make mistakes or they, they don't want to make, they don't want to try. Right. If they if they think there's a failure option, they don't want to try. So I think getting around that and, um, making a lot of mistakes and being okay with it, uh, was really helpful in the beginning because it let them, um, loosen up a little bit around the whole development process and understand that this is about development and you know we're going to make 50 things and, and 10 of them are going to be dynamite mm-hmm. 10 of them are going to be okay and the rest are going to suck and right. that's okay right because right. we learned something from the ones that suck mm-hmm. we learned what not to do and maybe something we made that sucks somebody else is going to absolutely love right right, right. and that's the aesthetic part of it mm-hmm. so um 
I mean, that was part of it. And that was also really giving them the respect that they knew what they were doing, right? Because I wasn't making fishing rods. I was making something that they knew more about than I knew. What they didn't know was sound. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was how to make it go. But I knew sound, or at least for myself. And I was curious enough to explore sound. So Mm -hmm. it was really in, in the early days, it was about, this sounds really cool. Why? And we all, I think they learned as much as I did about, how to change the sound of a symbol by changing mm-hmm. one or two of the parameters. Right. Um, Realizing that, what you're looking for and you say, Oh yeah, that's what yeah. I want. And they say, Oh, well we, act, here's what we did. We, here's how we did it. Okay. Do more of that, but less of the other thing that you did. And sometimes yeah. I'm guessing you had those sorts of conversations where they're very non-scientific conversations where it's like, do less of this, more of that thing and put some of that th- other stuff on there. <laughs> you bet, man. There was so little science in the in the beginning. It's all instinct, <laughs> right. completely instinct. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always interested in in the zero to one. So, like, we talked a little bit about, or we talked a lot about how how the process worked in China. But what about what about getting started? That I think that there's always this this big barrier of going from zero to one of having an idea to actually making it a reality. So for you. What were some of the steps that you took early on to actually start doing things like, you know, like day one, it's like, uh, you know, day zero, you're like, okay, I have these ideas. Here's, here's the things I want to do. And then you wake up Monday morning. What do you do? I think there's such a, there's such a gap there for, for a lot of people. Yeah. I think because uh, we live in an age of, of the startup, right? Mm -hmm. Like, pardon me. We live in an age now where the most exciting generation, the people between, you know, 21 and 40 are, um, they live in an economy that doesn't have nine to five jobs with a pension at the end of the day. They're making up their own work. And, uh, in a world where everybody, you know, the idea of starting an idea or starting a company has been democratized. It's no longer only available to the robber barons of centuries past, but it's available to you and me and anybody else on the street. Um, the danger of that is, as you said, the zero to one, because what we see is zero to 100, right? Right. It's figuring out what those first steps are. And I think perspective is a big part of that, is, is realizing what can I do today and what, what is just impossible to do today. So that's a tricky question, Nick, because you know, I've never really thought about it. It seemed really organic at the time. It was like, mm-hmm. well, let's buy some, let's get some samples in and check that out. Oh, these are cool. Okay, um, get some feedback. You know, keep your ears open. Listen, listen, listen. So, you know, step one was zero to point five was listening, listening to the instrument and listening to people who were playing it, not just my own opinion. Mm-hmm. And then going, okay, well, this is the change we want to make. How do we make it? How do we make this change? And then, you know, sometimes you get up in the morning and all you got is that question: it's like, how do I make this change? And you go, well, I don't know, but let's let's ask. Let's not be afraid to ask stupid questions. Mm-hmm. So we go to the factory and say, well, how do we make this better in this way? Um, and, you know, as a team effort in, in some respects, it's like, uh, what can we do? Well, we can change the knife or we can change the order of process here and that will get us the result we want. And um, I think initially the zero to one is is to try, but don't – don't try to think that you're going to get to the end game immediately. Right. It's, it's, it's a series of little tiny steps that 
essentially are quite organic as long as you're not trying to get to, I want to be a CEO by the end of the month of this major company because it just doesn't work that way. It's not going to happen, right? It just doesn't happen that way. And if it happens for you, then you are way smarter than me, but it it shouldn't happen for us that way. It's just, it's a step at a time and each step reveals what the next step has to be. I know that Mm -hmm. sounds a little bit kind of Zen, but that's been our experience with it. I agree with that. And I think that we as humans think that we just want, you know, we're expecting these big grandiose gestures every day. And it's not that it's like moving this thing from here to here is the one thing that you have to do that day. And that's it. And and at the time, it doesn't seem like much. But if you move that thing from here to there, you know, a thousand times, it becomes something. Yeah, I mean, that's my day. You know, I get up and I have uh, I get some quiet time in the morning where I can make the coffee. That's the first thing. Feed the dogs. That's the second thing. And then sit with that cup of coffee and just sort of that's where I go, what am I going to do today? I try not anymore to read email before going to bed. That's dangerous Mm -hmm. Mm because then I won't sleep. I'll just be thinking about, oh, yeah, I got to deal with that hot flash or whatever is going to happen. Right. Um, So it's trying to find, you know, what's important that happens today. And there's, you know, there's the triage things. that These are all the people that need an answer on X, Y, and Z. I got to deal with that. But on the creative side, it's what do I want to get done this week or or today creatively and, and I try and make them smaller bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. And if I can achieve them, I'm experienced enough now to know that you're right. If you do enough of those, each one adds like a chain in the a link in the chain and it'll get you it'll get you where you need to go by the end of the week or by the end of the month. And some projects, man, some projects have taken us a couple of years, two or three years right. to get to the end of the chain. Right. And that's okay. You just mm-hmm. got to be patient with that. And if you really want that one to be finished next month, then that means you got to sort of Put everything else aside and get down with it. Right. So right. It's, it's a balance it's, act. It's funny that you're saying all this. I had a I released an interview uh last week with Will John Roberts and we were talking about sort of uh about manifesting things and and how how when you're looking for things or you put things out into the universe, things start to happen. And literally this morning I was at the gym and I'm think I'm always thinking about ways that I can increase my productivity and and how can I can be more more efficient and more effective and not just busy. I want to be more productive. So, and I have a morning routine that I go through and now I'm I I, I was thinking today I was like I'd love to just get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and do something for a half hour and then just go to the gym. Like, I don't really want to get into work, but I don't want to do email or anything like that. And it's funny, you're telling me exactly, you're like, yeah, I get up, I have a cup of coffee. And then I sort of, you know, I strategically think about what I'm going to do with my day. And I'm over here like, oh, maybe that's what I should do in the morning. (laughs) You know, it's easy to get, um, to fall into the trap that um, uh, a routine is productive. No, I'm, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I have, uh, I suppose if I think about it, I do have certain routines, uh, that happen, but Mm -hmm. you know, we're not necessarily being more productive just because we've got a really well-organized routine and we've, we've automated a whole bunch of processes, although they really help. Right. When you figure out what's, what are the things I don't need to really spend a lot of time on? It's like, well, that's, I'm going to automate. I'm going to find some software or some, some way of just sort of moving it forward so that I can find time to sort of be creative. But Mm -hmm. It made more musicians, right? The thing right. that thing that dream is everybody's a drummer, everybody's a percussionist, musician, and you don't wake up one day and say, "I want my paradiddles to be at you know 340 beats per minute," and expect that to happen the next day. Right? It simply doesn't happen. We know that as musicians, that doesn't happen. That is a long process of 
constant practice of nurturing that garden of the hands and the brain and the mind and, and the, the, the tone and the stroke. You've got to work on that stuff and you've got to nurture that all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's the same, the same skill set applies. That's why musicians make great business people sometimes, most of the right. time, is because they've got that discipline to sort of go and that understanding that it's not, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and, and have a result we want. We have to build mm-hmm. to that result. And, um, and it's not even linear, you know, like, you know, and you're trying to learn a new technique or a new groove or something. It's like, it goes great for three days. And then by day four, it's like you're back to your three steps backwards and nothing works. And you go, all right, hmm, put the sticks right. down and do something else, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, I think my short attention span is why I like being a percussionist because that for me is my experiences. I work at something and I get a little bit better at it for a few days and then I can't get any better at it. So I go and pick up some other instrument that's a completely other technique and, you know, poke away at that for a couple hours and then come back to the first one and then I'll get some success. But right. if I just push at the same button all the time, I hit a wall pretty fast personally and I don't, I don't get any further unless I step away from it and do something else. Mm-hmm. And I find that, you know, learning a hand drum informs my timpani playing informs my drum set playing informs my cymbal making really yeah you know and i would imagine that the fact that you are really good at let's call them sprints right like you're really good at these short attention span thing like i would imagine that that allows you to get a lot of stuff done that you can sort of but you can be very diligent and concentrate on a, a particular project or something like that and get it done and then move on to the next thing yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. I think I'm old. I've got enough experience now that I I trust myself that if I don't get it done that day, that I'll be able to pick it up the next day or in three days mm-hmm. and keep it moving forward without losing too much ground. Right. Uh, I don't think I had that when I was younger. I mm-hmm. think it was it was a lot more fraught with uh, insecurity and massive self doubt. Um, but <laughs> now now that I'm a little older, it's I can sort of poke at something really intensely for a while and. I might not get get right to the end of the result, but I can get far enough until I'm stopping to see a result, and I right. can go, okay, step away from this, move on to something else, and when you come back, you'll be able to pick up where you left off, and you'll probably get get to the end, the finish right. line on this particular project. Right. Uh, sometimes it's an all nighter, man, and you just buckle down. But even even those, you know, whether it's a playing thing or or a company business thing, all nighters have a place, but. It's better if you can come back to it. Mm-hmm. If you can find find the scheduling to come back at it. Right. That's the most productive, at least for me. There's a reason why I endorse ProLogic's percussion pads. That's because they make the most realistic feeling pads I've ever played in my entire life. Their color-coded resistance line offers decreasing levels of rebound and volume to increase your resistance and strengthen your hands. Like the green logics pad that provides light resistance to develop coordination and control. The red storm pad to provide medium resistance similar to a mid-tension snare drum. Or the blue lightning pad that yields heavy resistance to warm up chops quickly. And the blackout pad is an extreme resistance pad to build endurance and power. Check them out by going to prologicspercussion.com. That's P-R-O-L-O-G-I-X percussion.com. Grab yourself a pad today so you can practice proud with ProLogix. 
you had mentioned insecurities and self-doubt, which we all suffer, especially you can go on YouTube and watch any drummer, you know, playing and that's, that's, you can easily develop some self-doubt or insecurity. Is there specific things that you did to get over that? Or was it just sort of, you know, as you get older, you start to be more comfortable and realize that you have these abilities? I don't know if I've ever really gotten over it. I think I just don't let it bug me as much anymore. Right. You know, I, you know, I have a, I think I was actually, and I don't do Facebook very much, but, um, as Ed will attest to, um, but I was on a, you know, I was scanning Facebook and, and a next door neighbor of mine, who's a fantastic violinist, you know, he posted some GIF or something that was basically being a freelance musician is 99% or 90% self doubt and 10% absolute masterpiece. Right. <laughs> and I went, yeah, I get yep. that. And I'm a, but I was so shocked because this is a guy who I've always really looked up to. And I hear that from Sony musicians who I just admire. And I just, when I'm playing with them, I just go, man, this guy's so good. He makes it look so effortless and easy and fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then you hear them go, am I, am I good? You know, was that, was I good? Right. Did I, did I nail it? And you realize that we all suffer from that. And I think the easiest way to get beyond that is to realize that everybody has that. Right. Even the, the really great players, they have that. They've had those battles. And I think you just have to put it aside. If you let it eat you up and get in your way, you're just going to be banging your, your head against the wall. So mm-hmm. I think I just – getting older means you can feel the moment when it's working. Right. Easy. You get a little more in tune with that. So my chops aren't what they were, but I can get to the point where it's in the pocket and where it feels good and where I know I'm being creative much faster. Mm-hmm. And I know when I'm there. So, you know, it's getting up every day and hoping I can find that moment. You know, even if you're on a gig, it's like the whole gig isn't going to be fantastic. You're not going to feel like you just pushed it over the moon every moment. But if you can find those moments three or four times in a night where it's like, oh, yeah, we're all on the same page right now and it's really great. And if you can have a whole night like that, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the goal. You know, if I had a good ride, as I call it, I come away yeah. from a gig and I had a good ride tonight. It was a good yep. ride. You know, you know, it was a yep. couple little like hit the shoulder a couple times, but otherwise it was right between the lines and I had a really good ride. Mm-hmm. I take my, my comfort in that yeah. and try and build, you know, build barriers against self-doubt around that for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in building a company, man. You wake up and go, I don't know. I didn't go to school to become the head of a company. It's like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. I guess we'll figure it out. Right. You figured out. And I think I, I, I talk about this all the time and I think you hit it on the head that one, everyone suffers from this, you know, from, from the insecurities and the self doubt and stuff like that. And the flip side of it is I always think of like, everyone's just trying to figure it out. You yeah. know, like everyone, like no one's, no one's got their shit together. I mean, not that they don't, but like no one has it all figured out. Everyone's trying to, you know, is struggling to figure out something or, 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 you know, trying to make it seem like they, they have all the answers or something like that. And once you think of it like that, you know, for me anyway, I'm like, yeah, okay, I can figure this out. Everybody else is just kind of winging it too. Yeah, pretty much, man. I think that's the best way to get around that is just figuring we're all in the same boat. At the end of the day, we all just want to, you know, we want to do a good job and, and, and come away satisfied that we've created something cool and, right. and nice and, and personally rewarding and and maybe even rewarding for other people. Mm-hmm. That's what musicians yeah, do most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was what? What do you think was the hardest thing about marketing a brand of symbols? Given, you know, one, I know that it's hard going up against 
against the bigger guys, right? So that's the first yeah. obstacle. But it seems like, especially recently, there have been so many symbol manufacturers who have come onto the scene. How do you fight that noise or fight through that noise, I should say? And and what were some of the bigger challenges that you guys had? I think the biggest challenge in the in the early days and um you know uh try not to, can I swear? What? Yeah, you can say whatever. Oh, you want. okay. <laughs> yeah, sure we encourage that kind of behavior. All right. So we had a <laughs> saying early on. Um 2007 and 8 I'm working with Brian LaRue who uh, runs our US operations and who by the way I hired and he worked for me for like three or four months before I even met the guy like we talked on the phone nice. uh, you want a job because uh, this is where I'm at right now and you know I've just inherited this whole company because we broke up with the other distributor and I was like oh I guess I'm in charge <laughs> and now I got to do sales and marketing I don't know anything about that um, and Brian was a great sales rep so I phoned him. I said, do you want a full-time gig? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, you're in. Let's figure this out. And so, you know, we were trying to build a brand, but, you know, I didn't go to school. We didn't, we didn't say, hey, let's start a symbol company and it'll have this brand and this sort of concept. It was really all about the instrument, right? It was all about, we got this cool instrument and we think it's cool and I'll bet other in musicians might think it's cool too. And, and lo and behold, they did. They got really turned on by the sounds and the quality of the sounds and, the, and the, the timbre of the sounds we were creating. And then they got really turned on by um, our attitude, I think. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my suppositions in other people's brains here for a minute. But I think that, you know, early on the success was these sound really cool. And holy crap, that's 50% of the, the cost of what I just paid for my Zildjian hats or, or my other company XYZ's hats. Right. That's amazing, right? And we were doing that because we realized, hey, what are we going to price this at? I don't know. Well, what do we need to make to you know, break even? That's what we need to make. Um, well, if we have a distributor, they have to make a little bit of money. Okay, so what do they need to make? And we'd ask some, and they'd say, well, we need to make this. And so what does a dealer need to make? And I knew how tight the margins were for dealers. I mean, I was trying to sell marimbas. Talk about tight margins, man. Because most of that big stuff just sells – you know, these guys are selling it online for, you know, drop ship something and make $200 on a $10,000 instrument. Right. And you go, well, we want to stock them. And that's, that's a pretty tough sell when you want to put $10,000 into an instrument on the floor and there's only one of them and it might take a year to sell. You got to make more than 200 bucks on it. Yep. yep. Right. So, I mean, we, I think we cut through the noise by just being true to ourselves. We didn't, ever really look at what the other guys were doing big or small we just said well what do we want to do as musicians as guys who are struggling to make a living how would we want it to be in an ideal world well i'd want to be able to you know 150 bucks 250 dollars for a set of hats fantastic that's a great deal and they sound amazing okay mm -hmm. that was it like that was the driving force do what we would want to do as a customer try and imagine what a customer a working drummer would want to do or experience both sonically and in his pocketbook and how he was treated just from a company perspective and that's always we've always tried to make that the driving force of how we operate and i mm -hmm. think that's what set us apart and allowed us to cut through the noise because we weren't trying to react or compete or chase either one of the big companies or one of the small other companies that were out right. there right um and so the the short answer was 
you know, we, we saw, and we saw the, the benefit, we'd see the growth the sales double every year for the first two or three years and which are remarkable numbers. And you, and I'd say to Brian, I said, I don't know what we're doing brand wise, Brian, but don't fuck it up. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> or you're fired. Kind of no, just kidding. You know, it's like, we don't know what we're doing right, but don't fuck it up. Right. So right. it was about what we weren't doing, I think, as much as what we were doing. What we were doing was just being honest to ourselves and the product and, and the people around us. And what we weren't doing was basing every decision on what symbol company X, Y, and Z did. Right. And I What's think a, that there's a, there's a book about that. Oh, the blue ocean strategy. Oh yeah. I'll have to check yeah. that out. It reminds yeah. me of that of, of sort of essentially like, yeah, like going against the grain not going against the grain, but, but differentiation and in, in your product, but go ahead. Sorry. No, I think uh, that's, I'll have to check that book out. I think that's, um, that's absolutely right. That's, that's just where we were. Like, we didn't really have a brand thing. We let the brand become what our customers told us it was. Mm -hmm. And that was, so the, the brand is a, is a pretty authentic one because it's really been devised by the people who use our product. We just listen to them, right. let them tell us what they like, what they don't like, how they like to be treated, um, and work from there. And so the brand is really a reflection of that more than mm -hmm. anything. And, and now I, we're at a place where we're trying to like leverage that and, and you know, we got this thing with KMC and they're like, well, you know, let's talk about the brand. It's like, oh, we got to figure this out. Who are right. we? Right. Right. Which is scary because you've already sort of organically naturally done this and now you have to, now you have to sort of qualify it, right? And you have to- Totally. You, that's you terrifying. To, yeah. I, I would sorry. I didn't mean to like- <laughs> No, have totally. you thought about how terrifying that is? It's totally terrifying because it's like <laughs> now we have to quantify and qualify this organic thing. And what if we get it wrong? Like what if we're not seeing it the way other people are seeing it? Or what if right. we try and promote it in a way that doesn't resonate with the same authenticity that what we have been doing resonates? So it's a careful little process. You know, that's mm -hmm. the most fragile thing is is the perception of what the brand is. Right. It's fragile. Yeah, of course. And I, you know, I, and I'm not just saying this, you guys have done, I, and I don't, I can't put my finger on it either, but I think that you've done a really good job at developing a brand because if I, I think if you look at a lot of other, of the simple symbol companies, let's say some of the newer comers, right? Not obviously not yeah. like the big guys, but the newcomers are just like, Hey, we make symbols. You should buy them. Yep. And I don't think that they, I don't think that they differentiated themselves and for you guys i i can't i can't put my finger on it i don't know exactly what it is but i think that you guys have been able to position yourself to say hey we're not zildjian or sabian yet right but yeah. we are not everyone else either so it's been it's been interesting to watch from afar is all i'm saying well that's cool man i really appreciate that it's um it's been interesting to try and do, you know, um, you know, I don't say, I don't think we get up every morning, maybe Ed of all the people, Ed gets up every morning and goes, how do I protect this, this brand and, and, and nurture it and grow it for mm -hmm. what it is. Um, I get up and go, you know, what do I have to do today? And, and what kind of symbols do I want to make? Um, so it's, it, it's an interesting process to sort of to cover. I think it came out of our roots, you know. I mean, this is a company that's based in Canada that makes symbols in a factory in China that we don't own. Right. So I've known from the very beginning and the get-go that what I've been building is a brand. 
mm-hmm. because that's the thing I own. I own the brand. Right. I don't own the factory. I own the designs. I own, and I own whatever dream means to people. Um, our customers and the people that work here and, and what we do, that's what we own and that's what we're building. It's bigger than just a box of metal, but right. it's embodied by what comes out of that box of metal. Mm-hmm. I think if you're in Turkey and you're, you've got a factory and you make symbols, you own that factory. So yeah. I think that might be why, you know, some of those factories make 15 different brands. Right. Right. Because yeah. they own the factory. They don't really care. And, you know, they've got something tangible in their hand that will always be able to produce stuff that they can sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't yeah, have I don't think that hand. people understand that, that like, you know, some of the some of the Turkish factories are making symbols for other people. Some of the drumstick manufacturers are making drumsticks for other people. Sure. You know, who's making, who's making what, like I, I, I understand that, you know, I know the, uh, the, the manufacturing side pretty well. And as you do as well. And it's just yep. funny from, from the outside, you don't realize that like people are like, Oh man, these sound way better than this. And it's like, well, they're the same thing. <laughs> Oh man, do you remember your first ever NAM show when you when you, when those lights started to go off for you? Yes. Just outrageous, right? Yes. I remember, I remember my, Yeah. When I, I remember finding out one drumstick company made another company's drumsticks and I was like blown away. Almost yeah. heartbroken. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or or the other sticker shock of man, that conga looks just like this other conga. How much is this one? Right. Oh, right. Oh, no, like this one really is the same instrument. It's just got a different name on it and a price tag that's four times as much. And you just go, holy crap. That's a brand though. Yeah, that's a brand. And you know what? It's interesting. um, Building brands cost money. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other thing that that sets us aside from some of the smaller companies. The big companies know how to spend money on building a brand. Right. They've been doing it for generations. And they spend a lot of money on it. The little companies, maybe they don't. Or maybe they're not willing or in a position to, to spend the money on brand building. They want to just sell symbols and, ex- mm-hmm. and think that if we put in our name on it, they'll sell. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about those relationships. And, uh, you know, there's technical stuff to building a brand like trademarks and IP protection and all that stuff. And then there's social elements to that like an artist roster and and relationships with the people using your symbols and doing trade shows and doing local shows and supporting supporting musicians mm-hmm. right that's that's one of the ways i think we've been able to set ourselves apart from so many other companies because you know they make some symbols and put their name on it and wait for stuff to sell and right. our approach is no we are trying to represent something bigger than just symbols to the people that we're trying to do business with. Right. We're trying to sort of create this, you know, I look at it as a family. I like certainly the artists. I was who just going to say the word family. Part of a family. You know, it's, it's a family of, of yep. you know, the drummers are, the drumming world is a family. You know, drummers mm-hmm. band together. It doesn't We're not like guitarists. We actually like each other. I was going to say, I, I've said it on the podcast numerous times. Before. There's no other group of people, musicians who are, are so supportive of each other outside of drummers. Yeah, absolutely. Big time. You know, and uh, so, I mean, that's just part of our DNA at Dream. Like, mm-hmm. we are all drummers, so it's part of our DNA, and we get that. And we just try and bring that to the table every day when we come to work. And it sort of infuses what we're doing. Right. And, you know, frankly, a, another 
anyone can go and find someone to make a product for them and sell it, you know? And so I think that, I think that with you, what you guys are doing now with differentiating your sound and, and, and all of that stuff gives you a little bit more IP, but they're buying into, they're buying into dream as a family, you know, as a, as a, I don't know, as a, as I don't want to say a movement, but as a, as a way of thinking and, and a thing that you're trying to do, like you said, is bigger than, because they can go buy symbols anywhere, right? So why should they buy them from you? And I think that that, I think you guys have done, I think you guys have done a really good job doing that. And as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about how this is so applicable to drummers too, or musicians. It's like, okay, if you're a drummer, you can, you know, they can find another drummer that's good. So what is it that you put out there? What what kind of stuff are you putting out in public? What kind of person are you to hang out with? Are you, you know, do you look at the people who you're playing with as a family? All of those things are your your personal brand, you know? Yeah. It's so true, you know, everything that you do to be a successful musician as a as a freelancer, as a drummer, it's so much more about being able to play the notes. Right. You know? And you learn the notes, you learn how to play the notes in school and and you know, and when you're learning, you can make all those mistakes, but eventually you're out there, man. And it's your name on the line. And and if you, if you blow the gig, you know, um, sometimes it's cause you, you, you played like crap. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's cause you, you know, you puked in the singer's wastebasket after the gig because right. you got right. too drunk or you showed up late or yes, yeah. you know, I mean, it's all about that. Your personal brand is, it's about integrity. Really. Mm-hmm. If you want to be successful, as a musician or in business, you've got to have integrity. And if you don't, you might be, you might do really, really well for a short amount of time. Right. And then you're going to burn bridges because lack of integrity burns bridges. And then it's a small world, man. And then you got no work. That's it. Yep. Then you're done. Shit. Yeah. So how much are you playing now? Uh, pretty, uh, I'm pretty busy. I'm not as busy as I was. There was a, uh, a time a while ago when I was doing a lot of theater work here, so it was like eight shows a week, mm-hmm. um, which was great. I love that work um, was with great musicians. Uh, that scene changed a little bit, and it changed for me, and it changed here in the city. So I'm playing um, – in the summer, I play about a gig a week right now, mm-hmm. um, mostly classical stuff, a little bit of recording. Uh, and classical, I mean, it could be an orchestra. It could be uh, like a pop show. Or right. like a rock guy who wants to hire an orchestra. That seems to be the sort of niche that I've fallen into, um, because I can play grooves and I can read and I can work with a conductor. Nice. And that's that's sort of the work I get. Uh, but it comes and goes. I got a few other little um, ensembles. Um, Ray Dillard, who works for us, we were just talking about it with another friend. He's got the summer solstice show that runs all night, and we played for I don't know from nine fifteen till five thirty in the morning what yeah it was crazy and it was a lot of improvised stuff and it's about an hour and a half of that where we just sort of build loops and let them play and and people literally show up with their sleeping bags and and their their cots and they unroll them and you know they've been drinking for a few hours and they just sort of drift off to sleep while we got this loop going for about three hours and then but a half hour before sunrise we just sort of crank it up again and and build right to the downbeat and our clocks are all set and when the sun rises officially at 534 that was the last note we were done. That's awesome. was He's been doing these shows for years. And this is the first year I said, Ray, man, I really want to do the, the solstice show. And he said, okay, come on up. And it's out in a barn in the, in the, 
a little town north of Toronto. And uh, about 50 people hang in there for a whole night of improvised music for the most part. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. I actually, I went to a concert where they, it was the 99 into, the, into 2000 and they played from, you know, they played two sets, took a break, came back on right before midnight and played till sunrise. Nice. It's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind so, of a challenge. Uh, it's, if it was just improvising, I would have been cooler with it. But, um, one of the guys had to back out at the last minute Ray called and said, oh, yeah, you're up for like an hour and a half of material. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> so, um, I had to sort of figure it out and it was at a time, it was like two days after we'd just gone down to Hartford to, to do like a training session with the guys at KMC. So I had absolutely no prep. Uh, so I was sort of, it's funny. I said, I'm improvising, but with written charts. So I had some charts and just tried to do some arrangements on the fly with some looping pedals and, and some Rimba vibe stuff. And, and we were accompanying a film. We did about three passes of the film accompaniment. It was cool. It was, it was a lot of fun. There were some really cool musicians there to play with and, Awesome. Uh, I like that that kind of work a lot, but I also like orchestra stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I like I like the challenge and the, and the perfectionism of playing with seventy or eighty musicians and trying to trying to nail the style just right. Right. But I think that's why I like being percussionist. I like to I have a short attention span. If I was just playing timpani all the time, I'd probably stick a pin in my eye. Um, <laughs> but if I was just playing, you know, blues drum set all the time, it would be the same. Same, Same thing. Deal. I'd just I'd get bored with it and and want to do something else. So. Right. That's how are you? How did you deal with uh with juggling all this stuff with with doing this building a building a company and all that? Was it a challenge in the beginning, or did you take some time off at any point? Or well, you know, um, I guess it's always challenging. I've been blessed that you know I've been married to my lady for twenty seven years now. I think. And we work together, so she helps uh, run the other company. The backline company is still going. I don't. I took a lot of time off that. I don't really work for that company anymore. Haven't for mm -hmm. a long time now. Um, and I think that was one of the best ways to sort of make the time was to fire myself from that company and hire somebody else to replace me. Right. Allowed me to have <clears throat> whatever time I was putting into that to really just focus it on dream. And so pretty much now it's it's dream and and gigging and. Uh, I would certainly say that now uh, the gigging has slowed down because I've just I don't chase the work and there's younger guys who need that work and I, I sort of feel like you know Andy you've got something that'll keep you really busy and is making you a little bit of money and you don't have to take that work let these other guys sort of chase that because it's driving for dollars you know that right, right. freelance percussion scene. But I like to, I like to, I still like playing and it is part of my income. It's how I, I make part of my living and it keeps me honest. And if I'm not playing and I'm not doing gigs, I feel disconnected not only from my community, but from myself. Mm -hmm. So if I've been doing dream too much and I haven't played a show in, in, you know, two or three weeks or a month sometimes, and I'm like, oh, as soon as I play that show and I get into the rehearsal mode, it's like, you know, the, the phone is literally put on air, air, airplane mode and, you know, three hours into the rehearsal, I realized, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. This is what right. I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, and it just centers me and grounds me back and, and gets me more more like a person, like a human mm -hmm. being again. So I know how important that is. So you have to make the time, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the thing with Dream is we're all drummers. And if somebody says, oh, dude, I can't make that meeting as I got this really great gig and I want to take it, the answer is always take the gig. Take really? the gig. 
Absolutely. I mean, my other company was the same. We have about seven or eight guys who work for us uh, and girls who work for us as, uh, you know, they're driving the truck and they're, they're delivering percussion gear and repairing it and, and mm-hmm. setting it up and tearing it down. And it's like, this job is your day job. So you work it around your gigs. You can that's always awesome. take the gig. Because that's, that's awesome. how I, I started that gig, that company, so I could take the gigs, but still not have to have a, like a nine to five day job. So we've been able to pass that on to everyone who works with us. Yeah. Take, you know? Yeah. You're like, I don't want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not let you do it if I built this company so that I could do it, you know? That's right. Absolutely. So you, under, you're, you understand the situation. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone dreams like that. I mean, Craig's our artist relations guy, runs a warehouse uh, in Canada, um, does so many things at the company. But, you know, last summer he was out for two months essentially working from remotely because he had a theater gig and like summer theater stuff Mm -hmm. out at the beach. I'm like totally jealous because he was walking to his gig every day, (laughs) which was at the beach. But he was getting his work done. You know, that's pretty Uh, amazing. And he's just working, doing his work on the computer. And and so we all sort of step in and cover for each other if we have a gig and and because we know how important it is. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, we work at dream because we want to be musicians. Right. Really. Right, right, right. We, we, we love each other and we do all our work together and we have a really great fun time doing it. But, you know, dream is our day job because we're musicians. Right. right. And we want to take the gig. Yeah, I absolutely. Love I love it. Well, Andy, I, uh, I thank you for taking time to chat with me. I know that you're, you're a busy man and you could be doing other things uh, rather than sitting here talking to me. And I think it was one, it was very insightful for for sort of bridging that gap of, of talking about business, but how it ties in as musicians and being the fact that, you know, the fact that you're still playing and you're, you're still running this business and you're doing all these things because look, the the flip side of it is as a, as a freelance person, as a freelance drummer, I think that there's some other irons that you should have in the fire. So you've managed to be able to do that. So I think that was really important for, for the audience to hear. So thank you for that. Also, thank you for being a longtime supporter of the podcast. Dream has been advertising on the podcast for a very long time. I appreciate it. The listeners appreciate it because it keeps the podcast free. So thank you uh, sincerely for that. And also congratulations on the success that you had. I think you've done an amazing job so far, and I can't wait to see what the future holds. Well, Nick, I can't thank you enough. Um, you know, the fact that you've done this podcast is an example of what we've been talking about today is that musicians, everyone has another skill set out there of some kind. And you you can support your playing habit <laughs> with right. with some other skill set that you have. And uh, and that's what makes us all part of the same family because we all, we, we all really get that. We understand that with each other. So we wouldn't be successful without without you, this, your support and and in being a voice uh, for drummers and, and allowing us to sort of reach other people and reach more drummers out there. And it's, we wouldn't be successful without the people who are playing our cymbals. So it's really all about them and it has to be about them. Otherwise, uh, you know, why bother? Yep. That's what I think. I appreciate all of your time and your effort. Really course, I'm sorry I, I talked way too much. Sorry I don't know. I, you didn't. You didn't talk too much at all. <laughs> Andy, cool. thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Ah, uh, my pleasure. Take it easy, man. Talk all right, to you, you too. Cheers. So there you have it, Andy Morris. I hope you dug that. I hope you got some information out of that. And also, I hope you take some of those lessons that we were talking about and 
realizing that everyone has imposter syndrome, everyone has these self-doubts that they have, and we need to get over them and just remember that all you can do is do the best every single day and you can't worry about anything else. I hope you really enjoyed this. You can check out dreamsymbols.com for all of their symbols, their symbol line, all the cool stuff that they have going on. And uh, other than that, that's all I got. So I hope you enjoyed it. Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon.